So one of the things I love about our church is the diversity of jobs, right? I love the fact that we've got young people and older people. We've got people that are retired. We've got people that are trying to figure out what their career is going to be. And I love the spectrum, right? We have people that are people working high-powered jobs in business, right? You're influencing the world through business. I love that we have political leaders in our church. I love that we have hundreds of teachers in our church that are cranking away, loving and serving the next generation, right? I love that we have tradesmen in our church that are working with their hands. In that diversity, when we talk about work, it's easy to think that this talk applies to other people. So what I want to say today is that the person and work of Jesus who Jesus is and what he really did in history 2,000 years ago has power to reframe, redirect, and redeem all work. The work of a stay-at-home mom, the work of a carpenter, the work of an electrician, the work of a teacher that has to get up tomorrow and face a really difficult classroom. So today we're gonna talk about Jesus and what he does to change work. And I want to talk by talking, I want to start by talking about how we miss work in our culture, right? We're messed up in a lot of ways in our culture, and our relationship with work is really dysfunctional. We approach work as Americans in thousands of different ways, but in some ways you can put them into two big buckets. Some of us approach work like human beings are productivity machines. Productivity machines. If you approach work like you're a productivity machine, you're going to try to justify your very existence with your job. You're going to try to create your identity from your job. And if you lose your job or your job shifts or you're moved into forced retirement, you don't just lose your vocation to that particular job. You lose what it means to be a human being. If you approach work as a productivity machine, you're going to measure your worth against other people. You're going to have categories of important people with value and dignity and people that are beneath you who you rob of their value and dignity. If you approach work like a productivity machine, you are going to grind and grind and grind until you break and break your family. If you're a productivity machine, you'll sacrifice deep relationships on the altar to the God you really worship, which is work. And the tragedy of thinking that you're a productivity machine is that when machines break, we throw them away and just get a new machine. Now, on the other side of that, some of us approach work as pleasure machines, pleasure mas machines. And if you're a pleasure machine, that means that work is either going to be just an end to consumption or an obstacle to what your true God is, experiences of pleasure. If you're a pleasure machine, you reduce what it means to be human down to the bare, raw, elemental sadness of being a consumer. You become a walking landfill and your purpose is just to consume experiences and products and more stuff. The tragedy of living life like a pleasure machine is no matter how much stuff you throw into the landfill of your empty soul, it's never going to fill up. If you're banking on the stuff you can buy and the experiences you can acquire, if you're banking on that to satisfy you and bring you happiness, you are marching in opposition to all of reality. Stuff doesn't make life beautiful. Stuff doesn't make life worth living. There's an author 
and a farmer named Wendell Berry, who's just brilliant and disturbing. I dare you to read one of his books, right? And Wendell Berry writes this about work. Listen to these words. There is nothing more absurd to give an example that's only apparently trivial than the millions who wish to live in luxury and idleness and yet be slender and good looking. We have millions too whose livelihoods, amusements, and comforts are all destructive, who nevertheless wish to live in a healthy environment. They want to run their recreational engines in clean, fresh air. There is now, in fact, no benefit that is not associated with disaster. That is because power can be disposed morally or harmlessly only by thoroughly unified characters and communities. Here's what he's saying. The division in our own souls, when we see ourselves as consumers, the end of life being getting more stuff and more experience, there's a fracture that takes place in your soul and in your community where you become a walking landfill. He goes on to write, what caused these divisions? There are no doubt many causes, complex both in themselves and in their interaction, but pertinent to all of them, I think, is our attitude towards work. The growth of the exploiter's revolution on this continent has been accomplished by the growth of the idea that work is beneath human dignity, particularly any form of hard work. And we've made it our overriding ambition to escape work and as a, as a consequence, we have debased work until it's only fit to escape from. We've debased the products of work and have been in turn debased by them. The point I'm trying to make is that our relationship with work is really messed up. At various times, we overwork. At other times, we underwork. Sometimes we ask work to be our all in all, to name us and save us. We put our security and our hope in our work. Sometimes we see work as nothing more than a necessary evil and we punch our time, our time cards, not really caring about our work. We often do shoddy work and think that somehow you can work without your heart being in your work and still have an ordered and beautiful life. Or on the flip side, we become obsessed with work I've never done this, but I know some of you have. <laughs> and we miss out on the relationships that really matter. Or many of us just grind it out till our backs break under our toil without ever really knowing what a beautiful life would look like. And we start to think that the beautiful life that we want to live is out of our reach unless you're rich and have the leisure time that being wealthy could give you. You feel it and so do I. Work is a part of our dysfunction in our culture. To put it lyrically, we could quote some really wise words. Uh, we don't know if she works hard for the money <laughs> or if we should take this job and shove it. Are we taking care of business every day? Or in the words of Dolly Parton's most punk rock song of all time, are we working nine to five? <laughs> yeah, they got you where they want you. There's a better life and you dream about it, don't you? It's a rich man's game, no matter what they call it, and you spend your life putting money in his wallet. 
Now that I've accomplished my lifelong goal of quoting both Dolly Parton and Wendell Berry in one sermon, <laughs> here's, here's the thing I want you to see, and here's the claim of Scripture. Work is so connected and tied up to the essence of what it means to be a human. You got to actually ask a deeper question than what is work for. You got to ask the question that's under that question. If you're fuzzy about the real question that's under the question, what is work for, you're going to be completely confused about work. If you don't know where to aim work, it's going to lead to dysfunction that's going to affect you and generations. And the big question underneath the question is what are people for? You can't know what works for unless you know what people are for. One of the reasons that I'm a Christian, one of the reasons I follow Jesus and believe him is because Christianity, I think, offers the most sane, plausible, and beautiful answer to that question, what are people for? So today, I want to start with the beginning. I want to start with God's aim for humans and his aim for our work. And I want to talk about how those things became profoundly dysfunctional in our rebellion. And I want to look at the work of Jesus, because in the work of Jesus, our lives and our essence and our work gets caught up into something beautiful and eternal that means something, means something. So Genesis chapter one, if you've got a Bible, you can flip there or you can read along on the screen. Starting in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This text gives, gives us an idea, a beautiful idea, a revolutionary idea an idea unique to Christianity about what people are for. What does it mean to be in the image of God? What does it mean to multiply and fill the earth? What does those, those loaded words, dominion and subdue mean in a culture, especially that has only experienced dominion as domination, people of privilege hurting people that don't have privilege, and in a culture where we think subduing means taking advantage of? What's God's vision for humanity? In this text, what we see is something that followers of Jesus have been talking about and arguing about since the beginning of Christianity, that we are made in the image of God and we're called out of that image to work in creation in a really beautiful way. So what are people for? I think 
at the very least, you have to include three things. You have to include three things that are all profound and unique. One, we're created for relationship with God. We are created for relationship with God. The image finds its identity in relationship to the original. Image finds its integrity and its meaning in relationship to the original. It has no frame of reference to define itself apart from the original. It exists, it exists to relate to the original. In many ways, this relationship that's described in Genesis, as we read the rest of scripture, can be defined as a relationship of honor and worship. C.S. Lewis, who's one of my favorite writers, C.S. Lewis is a great motivation for me to never try to write a book because until everybody's read everything C.S. Lewis ever written, I don't want to contribute to the pile, right? Brilliant thinker, brilliant writer. C.S. Lewis said that like cars that are made to run on petrol, human beings were made to run on God. And this relationship of worship, what's so profound and beautiful about it, God gives them all the delights that you could possibly imagine, food and drink and relationship and sunsets, creation. He gives them all those blessings. But in those blessings, here's what you see. The prime mover, the core reason for their being is loving and enjoying and relating to their creator. And what you see in the beginning is that prayer is not some ritualistic duty. Prayer was communion with the God that loves them. God walked with them. God delighted in them and they delighted in God. And the order that God set in place as creator was an order for their blessing and their benefit for their thriving and their protection. Creation was subjected to mankind for care and cultivation, not to be worshiped because God alone was to be worshiped. This leads us to the second thing that people are for. They're not just for relationship with God, but they're designed to reflect God, to reflect God. Image is in its basic sense reflective. Reflection finds its significance in how well it images the original. God tells them to multiply and fill the earth, to have dominion and to subdue it. Now let's talk about those words for just a second. Dominion in this text, pre-sin, before, out of the evil of the human heart, we invented things like oppression, misogyny, racism, raping the environment to get all we can get without stewarding creation. Before all those things came into existence through our choice, those words dominion and subdue mean that men and women were to reflect something of God in the way they filled the earth with the beauty of God. Husbands and wives were called to rear children in the love of God so that those kids would grow up to reflect the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the love of God, the holiness of God. Society in God's original dream and vision in this text would be a society that you could look at and you would see not only God's fingerprints, but you would get an idea of his character, his ethics, and his mercy people that would live lives of love, artisans that would create works of art that would reflect the beauty of God. This is God's vision, that we would reflect God in relationships of mutual respect and honor and dignity, relationships that would be characterized by the character of the God that made us. We were made to reflect him. And then we were made, thirdly, 
humans were made to represent God. And this is a big deal that filling the earth and subduing creation meant that God was going to do something really crazy. God was going to do his work through the work of people. And here's what you see in Genesis chapter two that paints a beautiful picture of this. Let me read verse five of chapter two. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, why had the grass and the plants and the trees not started to grow? It says, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. Why was he waiting to send the rain? Look what it says next. There was no man to work the ground. Like what you clearly see here is that God has this dream to fill up the world with beauty and life, with all kinds of creatures and all kinds of food and all kinds of commerce that would be beautiful, all kinds of creativity. But listen, God wants to work through his vice regents, human beings. God's God, we're not but he delegates massive authority and influence to human beings to steward this world and to make this world look like the Garden of Eden full of beauty and plenty. This is representing God. It's representing God. God wants in this text to parent children through parents. God wants to feed hungry people through farmers. God wants to create beautiful art through poets, songwriters. God wants to work in creation and fill it with his beauty through the hands and the feet and the minds and the creative hearts of his image bearers who are to represent him on planet earth. Now, I know a lot of you are thinking, that sounds great, but if that's all true, to put it bluntly, why does work suck, <laughs> right? Because my job is terrible. I don't like my boss. I don't like my coworkers. I don't like my hours. I'm underpaid. For some of you, you're like, okay, I just got my degree. That's great. Congratulations on the debt that I've acquired and the fact that I can't find a job to pay the dadgum student loans off. So thanks for that beautiful fairy tale about God filling the earth and work being so wonderful. Listen, this story actually tells us why things are like they are. The world is broken, not because like other Eastern creation myths, creation came out of conflict. That's not what happened. It wasn't some cosmic struggle between good and evil, and that's what created the world, and that's why the world's messed up. What we see in the unique Christian account is that God creates the world out of the overflow of love and generosity. He's just, this is who God is. He's just exploding with enough he didn't create the world because he's lonely. <laughs> he was so satisfied and so happy. It makes all the difference in the world that the God of the Bible is a happy God. And out of his joy and his delight, he creates this world to share his beauty, to fill us with his glory. It's amazing. And in a moment of insanity, that's what sin is. Sin's not a list of things that stodgy Midwesterners put together to try to cramp people's style. Sin is insanity. Sin is rebelling against what's real. In a moment of insanity, the representatives of all humanity turn from God in rebellious treason. And here's what they said in essence. Paul tells us this explicitly in Romans 
They exchanged creator for creation. They were called to worship only God and have authority over creation, to steward creation. And in a moment of just sheer darkness, they believed the lie of the enemy that the good life would be found in trying to find their deepest needs met, not in God, but in the stuff he had made. And everything broke. They had been given such authority over the earth that their fall didn't just affect human beings. It affected the very fabric of the world that we live in. Scripture tells us that in this moment, God subjected creation to futility in hope of redemption. Creation itself is longing. Here's how God describes it. And this is a great picture of why our relationship with work is so messed up. In Genesis 3, verse 17, And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it'll bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Pre-sin, there was work. Work is an essential good. Work is a part of what it means to be a human, but post-sin, the nature of work changes and human beings become hostile to work, in particular in this text, to the ground. Instead of being wise stewards and caretakers that filled the earth with beauty, we become driven by our need to answer the question of who we are that only God can answer. So we're greedy. We're greedy. We have a relationship of hostility towards work. And in exchange, in return, the ground itself becomes hostile to to work. Instead of just producing fruit and beauty and abundance, now the ground is working against the work of human beings and it's yielding thorns and thistles. Can we just be honest? Like how many days in your work week do you go home having labored really hard and instead of productivity and fruitfulness, it was a thorns and thistles day? It's because creation is all out of whack. It's out of order. Things have broken deeply. I want to stop here for just a second. This is true of all of us. We either try to get things from work that work can never do, which lead us to doing the kinds of work that's harmful for each other and for the world, or or we try to avoid work to get the things we think are going to satisfy us, which is harmful for ourselves and for the world. And what I want you to see that's so crazy and unique to the Christian story is that in the beginning, God works first, and his work is good work. He says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And he shares that work with people to be in relationship with him, to reflect him and to represent him on the earth. And then we work. And our work was a work of sin, a work of treason and a work of rebellion. And in that moment, God had every right to call the whole thing off. But remember who he is. He's not like us. He's described as love by John the Beloved. 
and in his love, what he decides to do is not just work in creation and then withdraw because of our work of sin. He promises in Genesis that he would do another work that would even be greater than his work in creation. He would do the work of redemption. The first Adam totally blows it. And you and me are all related to him. He misses it. The second Adam, the Bible says, is better and different than the first Adam. The second Adam is not just man, but he's also God. The second Adam comes to do the work of God. And here's what's so beautiful about that second Adam, Jesus. We talked about what are people for? Well, Jesus embodies and lives as a human what people are for. Jesus' relationship with the Father was perfect. He said, I only do what I see my Father doing. I only say what I hear my Father saying. Jesus lived his life fueled by the love and communion he had with his Father. Jesus perfectly reflects God. Like, if you want to know who God is, you don't have to go to a sweat lodge to find him. You don't have to do a pilgrimage to the far east. Like you don't have to do a 40-day fast in the desert to figure out who God is. If you want to know who God is, all you have to do is look at Jesus. Because scripture says he is the image of the invisible God. When you look at Jesus, here's what you see. You see the character and nature and beauty of God. You want to know how God feels about hurting people? Look at Jesus. You want to know? how God's heart is full of mercy towards those that would turn to him. Look at Jesus. And then this is amazing. Jesus perfectly represents God, his father, as the beginning of a new humanity that was willing to bear the curse we deserved on a cross and be raised from the dead to usher in a new era, a new era whereby grace through faith in him, the image that was marred because of sin can be restored because of grace. Jesus came to build a new humanity, not a humanity that can boast as if they contributed to this great work, but a humanity that receives it as a gift and that has a radical shift in the way that we approach work. In Jesus, here's what work is. It's relationship. You do your work as a Christian with God and for God. In Colossians, it says, do your work heartily, not sloppily, not lazily. Do your work heartily. Do your work with passion. Do your work with pathos. And it doesn't qualify what kind of work. In fact, this text is actually speaking to bond slaves in the ancient world who didn't have great jobs and didn't have social status. He says, do your work with passion and heart. Why? Because you're doing it as unto the Lord not for men. This is like the best news ever for people that have crummy bosses. He's saying that Christian work is not work that we do to try to worship money or worship pleasure or worship experiences or worship status. By grace through faith in Jesus, what happens is your relationship with work is invited into a new realm where you relate to God through your work. You're to hang drywall like Jesus is your boss. True story. You're to, you're to be a school teacher like Jesus is your principal. 
You'd be a stay-at-home mom like Jesus is the one that assigned you and called you to that task that you've said yes to. Like all of the things that we do in the marketplace, business, politics, education, art, it's all about worship. Because we no longer have to ask work to do what it can't do, right? Secondly, Jesus restores the intention of humanity by helping us to reflect God. Jesus perfectly reflected the Father, but as we grow through the power of the Holy Spirit to love what God loves and hate what God hates, in your work, you get called to reflect God. Let me give you a few examples. Um, Like my wife is going to nursing school right now and she has to watch these training videos. And every now and then I walk in unsuspecting and I see what's on the screen and it's just the most abjectly horrifying stuff I've ever looked at in my life. I feel like Luke Skywalker when Yoda takes him into that tree It just goes poorly. It's like, ah, I can't unsee that. My point being, what do nurses do? Nurses are gangster. (laughs) Nurses clean bodies and tend to wounds. Make sure medication is properly administrated. Like, I'm trying to not get emotional, but all of that is a reflection as a Christian that points to God's care for bodies. When a teacher goes to work to train those little people up, that teacher is doing work that actually is reflecting the work of God, that he cares for little kids. He wants them to have a capacity for truth, to know what's real, to be learners, right? When you go to work as a construction worker and you're framing in that house, God likes for people to be warm and have space for family and relationship and meals. If you write a song, and I'm not just talking about just worship music, although we need more great, beautiful, true worship music, but if you write a song that disturbs people in a way where they actually have to question what's real and what's true in this world, that's partnering in the work of God and reflecting him. A song that helps people think about beauty, that inspires. My point is, as a follower of Jesus, work is radically changed to be worship and to be reflection and then to be representation, to be representation. That we get to help people get a sense of the character and beauty of God in doing the things he cares about, Right? As a Christian, you get to reflect God when you treat your employees with respect and dignity. You get to reflect God as you entreat your employer with respect and dignity. Not being shoddy, not being lazy, not Facebooking your day away. This reflection and this representation is a way that God himself works in the world. Right? So for Christians, Work is so beautiful because Jesus is so beautiful. Work matters because Jesus matters. So let me say just a couple of things as we land the plane, right? One, one, being a follower of Jesus does not mean that thorns and thistles go away yet. Thorns and thistles don't go away until he returns. You're gonna have thorns and thistles days as a parent, thorns and thistle days as a business person, as an artist, as a teacher, in the process of recovery, like 
You're just going to have days, man, where you worked really hard and instead of something good that you could eat at the end of it, it's like, what just happened? But Jesus, Jesus has given you his promise and his presence in the here and now to be with you even on those days. That it's still worship done heartily for him. It's still reflective of his nature and his character. It's still representing him in, on the, in the world as you do work that matters. Secondly, there, there are certain jobs that Christians need to run from. Work that belittles people, work that oppresses people, work that hurts people, work that doesn't take seriously the command to care for this world. Christians need to avoid that kind of work. In the early church, as pagans were wanting to come into the faith, the bishops would write out instructions for those that wanted to enter catechism. If you were a temple prostitute, you had to find a different line of work before you could go through catechism. Because bodies matter. Can't degrade your body and degrade other people's bodies. If you were a gladiator, your job was violence for entertainment. You had to do work around that, right? If you had a job where you had influence and power, you weren't commanded to get a different job, but you were commanded to do your job in a way that reflects the character of God by treating people with dignity and generosity. Early Christian business people were commanded to not cut corners in their dealings with pagans. Those that had in society a lower position were lifted by Jesus and honored. And those that had a high position were humbled by Jesus and reminded that they weren't better than anybody. So I want to tell you, blue collar, white collar is not the question. The question is, have you been added to Jesus by grace through faith? And are you doing your work in relationship with God, worshiping, reflecting his character, his ethics, his values, his beauty in the way that you treat coworkers and customers, employers, employees? And are you representing God and doing work that actually loves and serves your neighbors? That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. I'll leave you with two quick quotes that are beautiful and then we'll pray. Martin Luther The idea that service to God should have only to do with a church altar, singing, reading, sacrifice, and the like is without doubt the worst trick of the devil. How could the devil have led us more effectively astray than by the narrow conception that service to God only takes place in a church and by works done therein? The whole world could abound with services to the Lord, not only in churches, but also in the home, kitchen, workshop, and field. Amen. A spirituality that only affects the one hour on Sunday morning and ignores the other 167 hours of the week is not worth a nickel. I'll read you one more. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we ask God to give us our daily bread, and he does. The way he gives our daily bread is through the vocations of farmers, millers, and bakers. We might add truck drivers, factory workers, bankers, warehouse attendants, and the lady at the checkout counter. Virtually every step of our whole economic system contributes to that piece of toast that you had for breakfast. And when you thank God for the good food he provided, you were right to do so.